Hello and welcome to this week's BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, co-authors of Chokepoint Capitalism. Corey is a renowned science fiction author, activist and journalist, who's written a range of highly acclaimed books. And Rebecca is a professor of law at Melbourne University and director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia. And in this chat, we get to know more about what makes them tick and how they came to be doing what they do today. What, for each of you, is your kind of long-term goal? I'd really like to make something good happen. Um, <laughs> it sounds a little bit lame. I've been, I've been in this fight for maybe 20 years, leading teams, interdisciplinary teams, doing lots of empirical work, lots of theoretical work, providing the evidence about, about what we can do next in order to um, better achieve what we want, which is to recognise and reward creative workers and also to encourage widespread access to knowledge and culture. I came from a house that didn't have any books in it, Right? I was the first in my family to finish high school. I have um, a very, very strong belief in the importance of getting getting information and knowledge and culture into hands of people because that's how they grow up and become people who you know might create it and buy it um, and enjoy it themselves, but also another one of those conditions for a good life, in my view. Can I just ask you a question? If you grew up in a house without books, where did you discover your love of books? So school libraries, not public libraries because they had fines and I couldn't get there reliably enough. Um, mm. And now, thank goodness, um, all of the evidence shows that, that fines really do um, um, mostly hurt people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and that we're starting to see those get away. But school libraries um, and charity shops, I used to know um, which were the softest touch volunteers. I would go down there and I would like pinpoint them and I would negotiate really hard. And then I would sort of like wander home with like a huge, huge pile of books. And, you know, if I found one, if I found a book that was about boarding schools and ponies, I was in seventh heaven. That was, that was the holy grail. <laughs> Your two aspirations. Sort of ballet shoes <laughs> or the equivalent. Uh, uh, not ballet. So I got, I got, I got, I got expelled from country ballet school when I was three, so uh, that's a bit of a sore spot. What for? What could you possibly have done at three to get expelled? Mate, I don't know. <laughs> Although one of my assistants told me today, completely, as it happens, completely bizarrely, that she got thrown out of ballet school for being, quote, too heavy-footed. Which I think it's a horrible thing to say to a small girl. <laughs> but it seems to me what you're saying is that a good life is an examined life or a considered life. Well, look, I think that can be a part of it, but, you know, you don't need to overthink everything either, right? You know, there's the things that where you feel good, you feel like you're part of a community. Um, I, I, I'm always banging on about this, but it's a feature of neoliberal capitalism that you're supposed to feel empty inside, that you're supposed to feel disconnected because then you will feel it with production and consumption. And you'll go right? out and buy something to make yourself feel better. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, the conditions are of a good life are to have community and connection um, and, and nourishment from, from feeling part of something bigger than yourself and again I think the more that we get this and the more we you know just take the first steps along that terrain the closer we get to living a good life and also being able to save the planet save the world right we don't need so much stuff right if we've got people. Corey long-term goal? You know I grew up uh, nurtured by a lot of people who came before me sometimes very directly I had a mentor Judith Merrill who was a great science fiction writer and editor and critic who 
moved to Toronto after the Chicago police riots in 1968, uh, went into voluntary exile with her kids and opened the largest um, science fiction reference library in the world with her personal collection that then grew to be part of the Toronto Public Library system. She was the writer in residence at this library. And when I was starting about the age of nine, she would let me ride the subway down and hand her stories to critique this towering figure in the field. Sometimes it was less uh, direct, you know, it was people who had established institutions or who had built places that meant a lot to me, people who'd written books that meant a lot to me, and so on. And, and of course, the, the family that nurtured me, I have a very good family. And uh, I feel like there is a, an affirmative debt to pay that forward, right, when, when, you've, when you come into it. There are so many books I want to write because there are so many people who I want to read those books. And there are so many relationships I want to nurture and a child I want to bring up and to be a happy and well-adjusted person, um, a wife that I want to be a good husband to, and so on. I want to continue the political struggles that inspired me and, and to go on to uh, help the next generation carry on that mission that, that the people who came before me uh, uh, convinced me that I should be a part of. You know, I, I want to carry the torch. What are you both most excited about for your businesses? So, so, so it sort of feels very weird for me to think about being in business because, um, you know, I'm an academic, but I mean, I did it's sort a of business. accidentally start a publishing house last year as well with uh, 161 books um, as part of an experiment. These were out of print books that um, that included sort of half a dozen winners of our, you know, foremost, the Miles Franklin Award, our foremost literary award in Australia and many um, other incredible award winners, women writers, First Nations writers, really important First Nations histories. I do have a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak, but the, the most important thing for me is uh, I feel like I've had, um, I have such a blessed life. I feel extremely fortunate. Um, I had a lot of educational opportunities despite coming from a less privileged background that are not there as much anymore as we feel the ladder being drawn up. I feel the ladder being drawn up. Uh, mm-hmm. It's always uh, ever harder to get an academic job, to find an entry in, particularly if you are one of those first-gen kids um, that doesn't really know how things work. So it's really important to me to kind of create other opportunities um, and, and and pass on. You know, it's a little bit similar to what Corey was talking about to, to pass that on. That's my now that I'm now I'm in this position that I'm in. That's the the most important thing. It's a slightly disappointing thing to hear because you you know you always imagine that as time passes, the you know the democratizing of further education and the ability for people from all you know all sorts of backgrounds to go to university should be getting easier and it just doesn't seem to be well even if potentially it's easier to go to university for an undergraduate degree and I'm I'm not agreeing that it is because it does get more well, expensive certainly not in the and, UK because you have to freaking pay for it yeah, yeah. same in Australia yeah very very expensive and so on but then even then after that if you do want to go on and do higher education and you want to enter the academic job market the goalposts are just shifting all the time and making it more and more difficult and in some fields now you see people who have been working you know they've done everything they've done they've got their excellent first degree they've got a master's they did their PhD and then they work in really precarious, underpaid, highly stressful conditions for a decade or more in order to get that entry-level position. You know, this is bullshit. And tenure is very hard to get, right? 
yeah, that's a that's a whole other thing. But uh, it's still it's still a lot easier to become a law professor in Australia than in the United States. Uh, so I guess that's something. Something does <laughs> does it give you the scope to do your pursue your entrepreneurial activities? I mean, authoring. Um, absolutely, my law school. I work at Melbourne Law School, um, which is an incredible place, really supportive and nurturing, and they accept all of the strange things that I do. Um, and in fact, you know, during COVID, when we were setting up this publishing house, and there are research components. So if anyone's interested, have a look at Untapped. .org.au. Um, you can. That's the Australian Literary Heritage Project. Um, the, you know, they let um, me sort of take over most of the admin staff at the law school to work as editorial assistants because I said we're really crunched and I'm not sure we're going to be able to launch on time. And um, and you know, it's just all hands on deck. So it's a wonderful place. Um, they maybe didn't really understand it when I wrote this book with Corey. It's not the book that they expected me to write, but they've been incredibly supportive as well. Um, so I, I really love working there, and it's it's wonderful to have found a place where I can be me and do all of the weird and wonderful things that sort of pop into mind that I know will pay off eventually, but it might not be a very clear case when I sort of announce it at the start that I'm going to do that. Yeah, so I feel very lucky there too. And Corey, is it the seven books? No, I think that what I'm excited about now is is um, a, uh, a kind of nascent stirring of a coalition among people who are on the wrong side of corporate power, yeah. who may have thought that historically that they were fighting about the environment or about labor conditions or about uh, monopoly, but that really that they're all fighting the same underlying problem. Uh, my, my colleague, James Boyle, who's a, a Scottish law professor, lives in the United States, uh, teaches at Duke University. He has this analogy to the term ecology. And he says that before the term ecology came into widespread use, it wasn't really clear that people who cared about what we would today call ecology cared about the same thing. If, if you're fighting about owls and, in, and preserving an endangered species, and I'm fighting about the ozone layer, are we really on the same side? Like, is the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere somehow connected to charismatic nocturnal avians? The term ecology turns a thousand issues into a single movement. And today, you know, all of the beer is made by two companies— and all the shipping is handled by three cartels. And there's one professional wrestling league. And there's one professional cheerleading league. And it is a dumpster fire of sexual abuse. Feels like it's one too many, but anyway. Well, the problem is that when there's only one, people sign up for it even if it looks bad. And then their kids are subjected to the most eye-watering, hair-curling, awful abuse. Uh, there's two companies that make the most of the athletic shoes. There are is one company that makes all the eyeglasses. They also own all the high street retailers and the largest uh, lens manufacturer and the largest insurer in the world. They've raised the prices of glasses a thousand percent in the last decade. So you might think that you're angry that uh, a French-Italian consortium called Luxottica Essilor stole your vision, but you're actually angry at the same thing that the people who are pissed off that the wrestlers they grew up watching have now been misclassified as contractors, lost their health care, and are begging for pennies so they can die with dignity of their work-related injuries on GoFundMe. You're actually angry about the same thing. You're angry about monopoly. And, you know, as we gather all these different issues together under a single umbrella, under a single movement, we have the makings of a really important political force that it, we cease to be kind of atomized and we become a uni, unitary force. And I, I think that that is the thing that I have the most hope and excitement for. Rebecca, what has been your biggest fuck up? 
Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, you might want to answer while Rebecca thinks no, about that. <laughs> I think it comes back to what I was talking about before. Um, there was, when I was a baby lawyer, there was a job that I desperately, desperately wanted. And I really thought that I had it. I was very good at the law parts. I was much less good at the interpersonal parts mm -hmm. um, in a way that I hadn't quite really appreciated how important they were, uh, much less how to actually pull them off. Um, and so there was this job, there were three openings and four applicants, right? And I was the one who missed out and it hurt. Like it was something yeah. I'd worked towards for such a long time um, and it really, really burned. But um, if I had got that job, that lawyer job, it was a government lawyer job, um, I think I would never have found my tribe and I would never have found my calling. And there's so many times I've had similar experiences where failing really hard at something has put me much closer to the better path for me, um, which does help the sting in the moment when I do screw things up. And I think that's probably what I would have to say. Yeah. I've had lots of failures that weren't fuck-ups, right? Where I took on an, uh, uh, an impossible cause and it turned out to be impossible, but it was a fight that was too important not to take on. I've had lots of those and they, mm -hmm. you know, they haunt me, but the, I wouldn't call them fuck-ups. In terms of fuck-ups, like bad judgment calls that actually like took me a long time to reverse and figure out. Going to four universities in two years before realizing that I wasn't cut out to get an undergraduate degree. <laughs> I mean, it was only two years, but it was a lot. Did you just keep thinking, that one wasn't, I just didn't enjoy it there. 100%. I'll enjoy it much more at the next 100%. one. 100%. You know, the, the extra two years that I spent in secondary school, three years I spent in secondary school, were absolutely worth it. And uh, the two plus years that I spent figuring out that I didn't actually want to get a, an undergraduate degree were absolutely not, especially since this was at the start of the dot-com bubble. Mm. Like, I eventually left school to program CD-ROMs, which transitioned to, into a job making gopher sites, which transitioned to a job making websites, which transitioned to a job as a kind of freelance CIO, and, and got me in at the start of the tech sector. You know, people uh, ask me, like, what's your advice for, for getting involved in the tech sector? And I say, like, look, if you haven't got the work ethic and self-discipline and foresight to be born in 1971... I can't help you. So it's, you know, the advice I like to give a lot of clients, which is go and get some wood and some metal and build a time machine. Yeah. Because that's really going to help you. I love Indeed. that your time machine's made of wood. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> wood and metal and some, like, milk and pots. I, I, I think really what Pooper's thinking is a Viking ship. <laughs> I, I assume that it was a blue police box. Uh, yeah, I didn't know. What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, I went to a writing program and a writer named Harlan Ellison, who's a very mixed bag of a human being and a, a writer, but, but was often brilliant, said, all of you people get off the internet um, or get, you know, stop screwing around with computers. It wasn't the internet, it was just dial-up system. Stop screwing around with computers. It's a waste of time. <laughs> Absolutely the worst piece of professional and technical advice I ever got as a writer. Yeah. He had the opportunity since to say... You were wrong. Oh, he and I became uh, quite adversarial to one another for many reasons. He became a copyright maximalist and, and publicly denounced me on many occasions. And when he died, I wrote an obituary about what it means to admire someone who also does terrible things and um, how it is that you can understand people as sort of existing in superposition where they've done terrible things and they've done good things and one doesn't cancel the other out, nor does it erase it. Yeah. They're just there. All of that stuff is just there. But that's being willing to accept that people are, you know, fallible human beings that do good things and do bad things in the same Yeah, way. and you know, it doesn't mean you have to give them a, 
doesn't mean you have to give them a pass. So when Harlan died, I, I wrote this obit about him. And one of my former students got in touch with me and said, when my mother was 17, she wanted to be a science fiction writer. She idolized Harlan Ellison, as I did when I was 17. She approached him at a convention. And he tried to screw her. And she stopped writing for the rest of her life. And there are many people whom Harlan Ellison launched on their careers and was incredibly supportive of. There's a, a brilliant, legendary writer named Octavia Butler, who was one of Harlan's students. And Harlan, at the end of her program, said, why aren't you writing full-time? And she said, well, I have to live somewhere and eat food. And he said, well, if that's it, is that all? And she said, yes. And he said, I have a guest room. Just come move into my house in Los Angeles for as long as it takes. And she lived with him for years, and he supported her so that she could launch her career. She probably would have launched a career without Harlan, but this was a remarkable and generous thing. And the question is, do we have to condemn or erase the generosity to Octavia Butler in order to acknowledge the great harm that he did to my former student's mother? Or if we don't, are we erasing the great harm that he did to her? Like, is there some way that we can understand both of these things as just existing at the same moment. Not giving him a pass for it, but acknowledging that some of those things were good and some of those things were bad. You don't have to be his friend if you think the bad things are bad, but you also don't, the fact that he's done bad things doesn't mean the good things go away. No, although if you were being really cynical, you might imagine there were ulterior motives for maybe some of the good You know what? I know enough of his good friends to know that that's not true. And I, I, you know, he uh, edited a pair of anthologies in the 60s called uh, Dangerous Visions and Again, Dangerous Visions that were these avant-garde science fiction stories. And there was supposed to be a third volume that was literally 40 years late when he died and quite a sort of a running joke. And he once sued someone for kind of being too mean about it and so on. But his literary executors picked it up. A guy named Joe Straczynski who wrote Babylon 5 and was a good, a good friend of his. And Joe commissioned stories for a new version of The Last Dangerous Vision. And I wrote a story that's basically about Harlan Ellison in purgatory for this final volume that's, that tries to kind of explore all of this in fiction terms. Rebecca, worst piece of advice? So I was just being reflecting on this, and I think another of my superpowers is that I can just filter. I filter things through, and I just take out the useful things, and I completely discard the stuff that wasn't. So I can't think of any, but can I give the best piece of advice? Yes, yeah, that's, that's the next the, question. And that, so and that, you go. That, is, that is the better question, right. but we have to start. Which is that, um, so what if something that really matters to you that you really care about is going to take a lot of time? The time's going to pass anyway. Who gave you that advice? I don't remember. <laughs> I think, do you know what? It was a long time ago. I, it was a long time ago. I, I bet it was Twitter. It's <laughs> <laughs> a generic Twitter. The best advice I ever got from generic Twitter, but it's really stuck with me. Yeah. 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 Corey? Um, you know, it was to write every day. So when I was a baby writer, I often heard that advice. It was frequently repeated. And I assumed it was purely aspirational, like eat five helpings of vegetables and do an hour of cardio every day. Like what you would do if you had a staff, you would write every day. And when I actually started doing it, which was hard, right? It, it required a certain mental shift. I had to realize that although there were days where I felt like I was writing badly and days when I felt like I was writing well, and although after the fact there was work that was very good and work that needed to be redone, that these weren't in any way related. That how I felt about my work was far more connected to things like my blood sugar and how much sleep I'd had and whether I was fighting with my girlfriend than it did with the objective quality of the work. So once I started writing every day, small amounts, 500 words a day, say, for, on a book, two pages, it's a novel, I, every six months. Uh, once I started doing that, I realized that habits are things you get for free. That if you write every day, you can write every day. Uh, and that... 
you know, it doesn't matter if you feel good about it or bad about it. If you just do it, you will eventually feel very good about it. And there are lots of little kind of mechanical tricks for making that easier. Like if you finish in the middle of a sentence, you can type two or three words for free the next morning without having to be creative. There's sort of like, I'm, I'm told I don't drive standard, but I'm told it's like parking your, your manual transmission car on a downhill so that you can get it rolling before you pop it into gear. Yep. You know, you leave yourself a few, a few words that are, that, that are you know, you're going to write. But you know what? If you write every day, you will find it impossible not to write every day. It will just happen, even though you feel like the words are terrible. So it's building the habit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got a very good friend who quit his very well-paying job to become an author, and it kind of, you know, all of his friends were sort of slightly cynical, and he said, I'm just going to write every day. I'm going to treat it like a job. And he's about to publish his eighth novel. Yeah. You know, surgeons have days where they don't feel like doing surgery, but they don't get surgeon's block. And bin men have days when they don't feel like picking up your rubbish, but they don't get bin men's block. I have days when I don't want to draft articles of association, but I still draft them. There you go. Probably have to revise them the next day. (laughs) (laughs) And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Recommendations on what to read, watch or listen to? I'm not sure if our listeners have read Douglas Rushkoff's um, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which the title's a bit misleading, I think, but it's a terrific book. And he talks about um, how corporations were invented and what the purpose of them was, which is to extract. It is to extract wealth from producers and into the hands of capital. Um, So really recommend that if people are interested in any of this stuff that we're talking about as well. His new one's good too, Survival of the Richest, Mm. about, about billionaire preppers and the bunkers they're building. Yeah, in order to control the the mercenaries that they're going to require to survive in the world uh, that they have set out to What's destroy. What billionaires put in their bunkers? Um, it feels like the start of a joke. Explosive discipline collars for yeah. their ex-special forces uh, bloody guards yeah. so they can blow their heads off if they uh, try to turn on them and take the food. Hang on, that's a really dark dystopian idea that is, that is of the where, future. This is where Doug's book starts, is he goes to a... Uh, a retreat for rich people where he thinks they're going to ask him questions as a quote-unquote futurist. And all they want to ask him is like, when the event happens and civilization collapses, and I'm in my luxury bunker. Where do I get the explosive collar? How do I stop the mercenaries? No, no, you take the explosive collar with you. Yeah, how do I stop the mercenaries from killing me and taking my stuff? Because money's not going to be valuable anymore and there won't be the rule of law. And we don't know what else is valuable and important because that's how we measure everything by. But yeah, he thought he was giving a talk, but it was just him and five or six billionaires around a table. (laughs) Asking him what to do. Weird day, weird day. I mean, he's got a nice formulation of it, which is that these people are obsessed with making enough money to outrun the world that they're destroying by making enough money. 
right? He calls this the mindset. I have to make money. People are so depressing sometimes. You know, you say that, and it's true, but I am someone who briefs for hope, even in hopeless times, and hope is not the idea that everything is good or that fatalistic uh, kind of optimism that everything will be fine. It doesn't matter what we do. Hope, I think, is the idea that if you take some affirmative step to improve the world in some way, that you may find yourself having ascended a gradient towards a better world and attaining a new vantage point from which you can espouse some other way to make some material benefit. And that just because you can't plot a course from A to Z uh, doesn't mean that there isn't one. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you spend all your time trying to figure out how you're going to get from here to there, by the time you're done, the terrain will have been rearranged so that you're going to have to start over again. And, you know, as a novelist, I can understand the difference between a novel and, and real life. In novels, there are neat paths from A to Z. In real life, it's a lot messier. Yeah, I'm also really hopeful. Um, And I think one of the first things that we need to do on this path as we're mapping out the terrain, like how do we get to the lives we want to live? I think humans are really bad at noticing what feels good and what are the conditions for a good life. We're so exhausted um, by the lives that we're living now and running around producing and consuming. Um, It's only maybe a few times a year when we get away, maybe we go on a long walk or whatever, that we start to sort of feel connected and start to notice, oh, this feels better than what we normally do. I think the first step is we need to find more time and and more energy to be able to notice what feels good and then start moving in the direction of that. If we can do that, then I think that the rest will follow. Yeah, it's, it's about finding the time and then making sure you've got the energy to enjoy yeah. that time for a productive purpose. And that you can maintain that when you're back in civilization. Like I do these long walks, you know, five or six days, you know, sometimes just by myself, don't see another human, feel incredible at the end of it. But um, as soon as I get back to civilization and I pick up this black rectangle, you know, a lot of that flies out the window very quickly. Um, so we've, we've got to find the conditions for a good life and it does not involve email. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of things to read, I, I have been enjoying beyond all measure uh, an older series of fantasy novels, which are not my thing. I'm not much of a fantasy reader by Naomi Novik and it's the Temeraire books. Oh, you finally got to those. Oh they're my beautiful. God, they're so Brilliant. And there there are Napoleonic Wars with Dragons. But she is a superb writer. And as I say those words, I'm like, that is a book that I should never ever I want should to think read. that sounds really appealing to and, me. Oh my three. God, it's absolutely astounding. So it's Temeraire as in the fighting Temeraire. As in the fighting Temeraire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's nine of them. I'm halfway through. They are beyond brilliant. And I have to say, I mean, I don't know if Naomi's gonna listen to this. She's an old friend. Um, We are political fellow travelers. She's a copyright reformer. She started a website called Archive of Our Own that is run by a nonprofit called the Organization for Transformative Works that I was an advisor to when it launched. And I had never read her books because they were sort of fantasy with dragons. And I liked her so much, I didn't want to not like her books because it's (laughs) awkward. And I've read this and I'm like, she is a fucking genius. Oh my God, these books are good. So now I'm going to read her whole Uvra, which is great. I, I remember read it as well. It's maybe my favorite. I, everyone's it, like the whole, all of it just seems great. <laughs> so you know, I, I once ran into um, Werner Vinge's science fiction writer uh, at a summer institute, a conference, and I and I said, "What are you doing these days?" And he said, "I've just discovered Terry Pratchett." And I'm like, oh, really? And he said... Can't get better. Yeah, and he's like, this is like being 11. Not, not because of the quality of the work or whatever, but because when you're 11, there are whole series of books you've never read. Yeah. And you read the first one, and you can spend the whole summer reading these books, which is what he was doing. And I feel that way with, with Tim Rimmer, with Novik. 
Um, so the book that I mentioned was Laura Jean McKay, The Animals in That Country. Um, if you're ready for a book where the, it's about a pandemic, but it makes the animals and insects all be able to talk. But the other one I want to give a plug to is actually in the Untapped collection. It's one of the, the books that we brought back out. It's by uh, an Australian author called Peter Goldsworthy, Honk If You Are Jesus. That's, yes, that is one of ours. And it is incredibly subversive uh, if you want to think about what could happen if people tried to clone Jesus. Uh, okay. It's deliciously fun. Yeah. And, and I have a music recommendation, oh. which is the Talking Heads 5.1. I knew it was Talking Heads. <laughs> no, but it's a rarity. The Talking Heads 5.1 loud mix. So uh, d- uh, down mix, rather. So you, there were the loudness wars in, in music production uh, in the heyday of radio in the 80s and 90s. And engineers really pushed the sound up to a point where you lost a lot of the nuance. The individual isolated tracks came out on the mini disc. Mm-hmm. And a Talking Heads super fan took all of these off the mini-disc and remastered the entire oeuvre. Uh, every, th- every studio album by Talking Heads and the two live albums, the name of this band is Talking Heads and Stop Making Sense. And they are just kicking around as a giant file on the internet. So if you just search for Talking Heads 5.1 down mix, you will find this just amazingly great uh, mix of, of, of the Talking Heads studio albums. What advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. Keep going and it gets better. Um, take better care of your physical body. You are. <laughs> you, you only are ever not, find that out when it's too late. Yeah, I'm you are not an inconvenient meat suit for piloting around your very important brain. Uh, you, you know, I, as someone with chronic pain who had both of his hips replaced last year, I really do wish that I'd, I'd taken better care of my body when I was younger. Yeah, I feel really blessed. Actually, it's going to sound weird, but I broke my back in three places when I was 27. Um, and the recovery that I had to do from that, the, the rehab and building my body was the thing that made me be able to be very functional now. And I just had the 15-year anniversary and felt for the first time, I'm actually in much better shape now than if I had not broken my back because you know, I've got so strong and, and everything. So that's another way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't recommend it necessarily. So that was this week's episode of BWB Extra and we'll be back with a new episode next week. Until then, it's goodbye.